I'm back. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets and I'm your host. Today is Tuesday, September 30, 2014. This is episode 72 of the show. Today, it's going to be a personal show. I'm going to tell you about FinCon 2014, my MSFS class, and how I hacked a two-week, 3,200-mile road trip for about 600 bucks. Hope you like it. It has been a couple of weeks now since I've been here sitting in front of the microphone. So today I'm going to catch you up on uh, my lessons learned from the last couple of weeks. If this is your first time listening to the show, feel free to stick on, stick here and, and, and join us. But this is going to be a somewhat personal show, uh, trying to just share with some of my friends in the audience some of the lessons that I've learned over the last couple of weeks. Uh, if, you're in, if you're not interested in this kind of stuff, check back tomorrow for some more of our uh, kind of mainstream content. I am bringing you this information, however, though, not just to talk to hear myself talk and hear myself tell my stories. I can do that with other people. I'm going to just share with you some of the lessons that I've learned over the last two, uh, two weeks. And because they are specifically related to finance, I think you'll find them interesting, or at least I, I hope you find them interesting. And so it's been a busy couple of weeks of travel, and so I'm going to share with you the lessons from FinCon in New Orleans, which was two weeks ago, then the lessons from completing my residency requirement for my master's degree in financial planning uh, from the American College up in Pennsylvania, and then as a teaser to keep you with me, <laughs> I am going to share with you how I hacked this trip as kind of one of my personal fun experiments to, to push the limits a little bit. We don't call the show Radical Personal Finance for nothing. So let's start with FinCon. Uh, FinCon started off, I think it was four or five years ago, as something called the Financial Bloggers Conference. I think I first became aware of it a couple of years ago. And uh, Pat, uh, excuse me, Philip Taylor, who uh, has who runs it, has since changed it to be FinCon uh, to kind of be more inclusive than just financial bloggers. I, last year, wanted very much to go because I've always felt a real affinity for the financial blogging world, but I wasn't able to go simply because I was in the, you know, I was working for a broker-dealer, wasn't able to get out from behind that, and there was no point in my going at that time. So this year, I was excited to be able to go, and it was really, it was really awesome. Uh, it was really awesome. Now, going into the trip, I was a little bit concerned about how it was going to work out schedule-wise. I actually made a mistake when I was booking the trip, and I didn't look at my calendar closely enough. I had previously scheduled to be in uh, Pennsylvania. I was in a town called Bryn Mawr, which is, I guess is just on the outside of Philadelphia. And I had scheduled to be there to, you know, I'd been scheduled for this for six months for this residency requirement. It's only offered twice a year, once in April, once in September. And so I'd been scheduled to go to that, and then I saw FinCon, and I scheduled to go to that. And it was only then that I looked at my calendar after I'd you know, purchased tickets for both of them and kind of made arrangements. It was only then that I looked at my calendar and figured out that uh, that they were one day apart. So FinCon actually finished on Friday evening, excuse me, Saturday evening, and then at about uh, 7 o'clock or so, although there was an after party uh, that I didn't go to. But it finished about, uh, yeah, Saturday evening. And then on Monday morning at 8 a.m., I was scheduled to be in class in, in Pennsylvania. And this is important because I had planned and wanted to drive. 
Uh, I could have flown. Obviously, that's what most you know sane people would do. But I particularly don't enjoy flying. Not because I have any problem with flying. Uh, I actually like the flying part. It's all the rest of it that I don't love. And I I like driving when it's a reasonable distance. Now, my definition of reasonable. <laughs> reasonable distance is different than many people's definitions of reasonable distance. <laughs> Most people would not consider Florida to Louisiana to Pennsylvania reasonable distance for a road trip, but I considered it so. <laughs> and I'll give you more details on that in a minute when I talk about kind of how I, I uh, hacked this trip in, in my own unique uh, experimental way. Um <laughs> My wife and I have a constant ongoing discussion over what is a reasonable distance to drive and what is a reasonable distance to fly. She would almost always choose to fly, and I would almost always choose to drive. So we uh, we have to work that out. Um, but this was surprising to me because I had planned to take my family with me, and I had planned to make an event out of FinCon. I'd never been to New Orleans. I figured I'd go a few days early. I would you know get the lay of the land. We would do some tourist stuff. I'd hang out in Louisiana, eat some good Cajun food, maybe go in the swamps or do something fun, and and uh, take my you know meander my way home again. And then I figured you know I'd go up to Pennsylvania. I haven't been to Philadelphia in a long time. I figured I would make it into a fun trip, and. Uh, but when I looked at the schedule, it just didn't happen. So I wound up going by myself and uh, and just simply uh, making it a quick trip, mainly just focusing on business. But had an awesome experience at FinCon, and it was really unique to me. I've been to a lot of conferences. I guess maybe that's a little bit uh, excessive. I've been to some conferences. I've been to many conferences. I like going to conferences. I learn a lot. I find they're very, very valuable. I find they're just – I always get a lot out of them. Uh, but FinCon was one of the most unique where I felt – it's hard to say – figure out how to say it. I felt more welcomed. I felt like more of kind of like I belonged uh, because a bunch of oddball weird people uh, who are all interested in finance. And I like oddball weird people who are <laughs> interested in finance. That's my kind of gang. And so it really just felt incredibly comfortable right from the beginning. Uh, it just felt like I – fit in many ways with this weird oddball community of financial people trying to figure out how to change the world basically one day at a time. And that was a unique experience. experience. It's been a while since I was able to to enjoy such a, a community of people. And the most interesting thing about it was the sheer variety of people. As the conference has grown, if my memory is right, it was something like 600 people, maybe a little under 600 people this year. As the conference has grown, there have been – there's been a development of attendees. So, you know, it started as financial bloggers and, and financial bloggers, you know, a few years ago, there were just a few big ones and then some starting up. And now the world of financial blogging is so massive and there's so many little niche blogs that, that writers cover these little interesting topics. And, and so that's just interesting from the sheer variety. You know, in the, back in the day when I first started reading financial blogs, I think maybe there was, you know, here's some smart things to do with money. Uh, I remember, you know, lazy man and money and get rich slowly and, um, uh, the simple dollar. I think those were the big, big ones at that time. The con- consumer commentary. Uh, what were some? Of, there were some other ones at that time. Back in the back in you know in those days, that were just basically I would call them just mainstream financial blogs. But now, I mean, it's hard to get a mainstream financial blog like that to really work. Now there's so many interesting niche blogs. You got guys and gals blogging about couponing, and you got guys and gals blogging about. Um, 
you know, getting out of getting out of debt and got guys and gals blogging about being, you know, multimillionaires. You got all these interesting niches. And so that makes for an interesting group of people. But even better than that is now the financial media world is not uh, confined to just blogging. So I'm there. I don't really have a blog other than the fact that it's necessary to have, you know, to set up an RSS feed to distribute this show. But for me, my entire focus is on audio. I'm trying to serve you, the audience, who is perhaps listening to me as you commute or drive or out on a run or doing something where maybe working on something where you're not able to look at a screen. So I'm, I'm not really interested in doing a lot of writing right now. I'm trying to serve you from an audio perspective. That's why sometimes, uh, if you're wondering, that's why sometimes I choose to read lengthier passages than, and not just say, well, go to the link. It always annoys me when podcasters will say, go to the link. And I'm saying, don't you realize I'm driving down the road here and I can't just go to the link and I'm not going to do it. And then when I get home, I'm going to be busy and I'm not going to have time to sit at the computer. So uh, I don't know whether you like it or not, but I always like it when a podcaster will actually read the article or read enough of a selection that I can get the context for whatever it is that they're talking about. So I'm trying to serve an audio audience. And then you get into the world of video and YouTube, and there's just so many people doing interesting things. And it just makes for an awesome community of people. I felt like I was continually sticking my hand out and doing my how are yous and who are yous and feeling like, wow, what <laughs> what an interesting person and what an interesting story. Look, look how cool this person is setting out to change, you know, this person is changing the world. What an awesome story. And I felt like it was that way for the whole week. I went, uh, I started on Wednesday. I was there for a total of four days because I went a little early for uh, this camp thing they did. And it just, it was awesome. Uh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you're interested in going to the uh, camp in the future, I thought camp would have been really helpful for bloggers. Uh, but since I don't really write, a lot of it was about writing. I didn't really, I didn't really get much out of it from the perspective of writing. I did really enjoy it, however, as far as having the opportunity to really connect with some people before the conference. And I'm glad I went for that purpose because I made some really real friends those first couple days when there was only a hundred or so people around. And those friendships kind of carried on through the coming days. So I'm really glad I went, really enjoyed it. And uh, if you're a writer, if you're a financial writer or a blogger of some kind, then go ahead and and uh, consider going in the future. I'll pro- I don't know. Maybe I'll go next time. Maybe I won't. Who knows? Uh, I had an opportunity just to meet so many people that I've read their work. That was one of the most exciting things was just meeting somebody and looking at their name tag and recognizing that I knew their work. And I really loved having the opportunity to tell them just face-to-face how much I've appreciated their work. Uh, As a podcaster, uh, I've only just recently realized the impact of the positive encouragement from an email. Uh, I always have assumed people writing blogs and doing podcasts are busy enough without trying to read my email. So I'm usually – in the past, I never really reached out to people. But now, being on the other side of the microphone, it's – I've really learned to appreciate it. It means a lot to get an email and to get a note from somebody. So I was able to do that in a, in a face-to-face uh, perspective. Uh, I met some people. For example, I'm, I'm involved with a group called the XY Planning Network, and I had the opportunity to meet about six or seven of those guys and gals. Uh, we're trying to work together to build a, a new uh, model for financial planning, uh, which I'll go over at some point in, the sh- in a future show. But it was nice because we've done so much work virtually. We've talked to each other virtually and had Google Hangouts and things like that. But it was fun to actually get to meet meet the people. I learned a lot from doing the shows that I did while I was there. I did a live show which was uh, they had a podcasting table set up up by the registration, and that was where I recorded recorded the live show with the l- question from the listener, 
uh, who asked about should I get a CFP designation or some other financial planning designation for my own personal knowledge. And wow, was that tough. <laughs> that was probably the toughest public event that I have ever done. And I, I'd never been to one of these conferences. I never, I don't know, I didn't know what I should expect. And I wasn't expecting people to listen to me while I recorded the show, but I underestimated how challenging it would be to speak to a crowded room of people that can hear me but aren't really listening to me. Looking back on it, next time if I have an opportunity like that, I'm doing doing an interview show. I'm doing a conversation because it was just tough because I did that show by myself. And it's weird. There's In podcasting, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk. I've got my computer screen in front of me. I've got a notebook and a pen and, and the calculator over to my side and a coffee cup, and that's it. And so when I'm speaking with you, I'm really, you know, I don't look much at my notes. I just kind of think about trying to communicate with you. And no one can hear me other than the, on the recording. And so it's easy to really focus on trying to do my best effort to communicate the concepts that I'm looking to communicate. In a speech, like, but a speech is very different. So if you're, if you're giving a speech to a room and a room of people is, is standing there looking at you, that is very different. And the nice thing about a speech, though, is everyone is generally listening to you. If they're not listening to you, shut your speech down and go, <laughs> go on. Um, which, by the way, tip for those of you uh, – I'm going inter- to interrupt myself before I make my point. Uh, tip for those of you who are faced with speaking to people and who are faced with introducing people – one of the things that I think a lot about in our society is how challenging it is to keep people's attention now. And there were several instances, even at, at FinCon, where there was you know, a lunch speech or something like that. A lunch speech was being delivered, and the room of people wasn't really listening that closely. First of all, if you're ever introducing somebody, I think it is the person who is introducing a speaker. It is our job to get the attention of the room. It's very difficult if you're a speaker to ask for attention. So let's say that in a setting where which is very difficult to speak at, and something like a lunch crowd or a breakfast crowd where people are eating and kind of paying attention. We've all been to those events where people are eating. They're gathered around their table. They're not really looking at you, but they're kind of listening, but they're sort of kind of talking with their neighbor or something like that. If you're introducing somebody for a speech like that, get the crowd's attention and get the crowd quieted down. When you are making the introduction, you have the opportunity – to ask for the attention of the audience, and it's and it's able you're able to do it in a polite way, but in a demanding way to tell them, audience, quiet down. It's time for the speeches, and you can wrap the glass, you can tap the mic, you can say, "Hey, shut up and listen to me." Whatever it is that you want to do, you can get the audience's attention. It's very difficult as a speaker to be able to do that because generally, as a speaker, you're launching right into your talk, and for you to have to stop and demand. The attention of the crowd is more challenging because it's, it's a little demeaning. It's a little hard to demand the attention of the crowd. You want the crowd to want to hear what you're saying. So if you're introducing somebody, get the attention of the crowd. Do your job. It's not just about reading the script. It's about taking control and command of the room so that you can set up the speaker to really have a strong start. So just remember that if you're making the introduction. If you're a speaker... And I've been in this situation, and I'm kind of reminding myself, get control of the room. 
we are still polite enough in our society that, you know, if you're standing up front speaking, you've been invited to be there, get control of the room. And a lot of times new public speakers are scared to do this. But even if you don't know how to do it in an elegant way, at least just simply ask for the audience's attention. And there are more elegant ways to do it. Maybe you can make a study of that if you're if you are. Uh, I don't want to go into that because it's something I'm interested in. But I made I made a note to kind of make a study of practicing. What would I do if I'm having a a room of people that's not really paying attention to me? And but get control of the room. It's really hard for those of us who are trying to listen to you to hear, and we can't do anything in the crowd really to to help you get control. But if you take command of the stage, and one simple and easy way to do it, if there's a microphone, pick it up. Most people, when you watch them speak, uh, they're scared of the microphone. And if and I used to, when I was a kid, I used to run an audio board at my school, uh, just kind of for fun, mainly because I didn't like sitting in the crowd and listening. It was easier to go run the audio sound system. And people are scared to pick up the microphone and speak into it because they're concerned about being too loud. Now, when I'm recording a show, I need to learn some good mic usage. So, for example, I, I usually don't get up here and talk like this because this was just a little bit too much and you can hear every sound I make. Uh, I usually pull back a little bit like this. But if I sit back like this, you can totally hear just the difference in the sound if I do something like this. And the difference between this, my normal speaking tone of voice, this where I'm talking to you like this, and this, where I'm right here, that's a total difference of about eight inches in how I speak in the microphone. And you can hear in your ears, you can hear the difference. So little rant here, just speak into the microphone. Pretend you're kissing it, frankly. Um, let the audio people cut your audio. But if in several of these situations, if you have a room where the people aren't really paying attention to you, at least if you're loud, those are the people who are, those who are interested in hearing you can can hear you. They can hear you over the, the roar of the crowd. But if you're sitting back here like this and there's just a general, there's just a general uh, noise in the room, then it's just the worst of both worlds. So don't be scared of the microphone. Kiss the microphone while you're talking and let the sound people adjust your volume. And then finally, just a tip, like get control of the room, speak into the microphone, be loud, and have something interesting to say is really the big thing. Make sure that you have something interesting to say that's going to be appropriate for the crowd. Know your crowd before you're going in and have something interesting to say. To say, <laughs> to say it for the third time. <laughs> Sorry, that just bothered me. And the last one, if you're in the crowd, try to help the speaker. I mean, I really think it's so tough to be a speaker and so many people are not accustomed to it. We're not accustomed to uh, how to do these things. And, you know, when you're nervous about giving a speaker, excuse me, about giving a speech, it's so much more challenging to take control of the room. Help the speaker out. Try to shush your table if you can. Be polite. Um, just bothers me. Uh, I know it's just personal pet peeve. So uh, there's a rant. I got off track. Let me get back on track. Hopefully that'll just be a, a helpful tip. I don't mean it to be a, yeah, hopefully that will help some of you. I, I've been in that situation. I'm sure I'll be there again. So hopefully that will help some of you. Back to recording the show. So a speech is really, even though one person is talking, it's very much two-way communication. So when you're speaking to a crowd, you're watching the feedback. You're watching how the crowd is engaging, and you're adjusting your speech to how the crowd is responding and how the crowd is reacting. 
So in a speech, even though one person's talking, it's two ways. And so that's really great because you can see what's working, what's not. You can watch the crowd. You can see whether you're having the effect that you want or whether you're not, and, and you can adjust accordingly. But podcasting to, to a live crowd was tough because instead of me being able to visualize you in my head as listening, I had to see the people in front of me. But instead of listening to me, instead of listening, they're not listening. They kind of hear you, but you're just part of the general noise. So if you hated that show, forgive me as far as the live show. That was a tough show to record. And uh, I'm going to do it totally different next time. Never been in that situation before. I almost feel like I owe the the listener who asked the question a completely new answer. And who knows, maybe I'll do it because thinking back on it, I was so struggling to say, am I getting my point across? I was distracted and all over the place, even though I had careful notes. It just didn't flow for me like it usually did. So I enjoyed that uh, very, I mean, it was challenging. I enjoyed the challenge, but it was challenging. So if you're a podcaster and you're listening to this, that would be, or you have the opportunity in the future, maybe that would be one tip that would be helpful for you. The other show that I recorded that I released was the interview with Steve Stewart from the Money Plan SOS podcast. And we talked about the Dave Ramsey show. And, uh, or we talked about financial broadcasting with a focus on Dave Ramsey. I'll tell you, I was very nervous about releasing that show, but I, I've received nothing but positive feedback on it. And I thank you for those of you who have both commented on the show and who have sent me private emails. I thank you for the feedback. It has been very encouraging. I was shocked at this conference, and I spoke about this with several other people who are involved in the financial media, I was shocked at the level of, I'm not going to say animosity, but at the criticisms leveled towards Dave. And frankly, after the fact, I, wonder if, I wondered if he deserved it, because <laughs> I think Dave's a great guy. He's probably a guy that he and I would get along famously if we knew each other. Uh, maybe we'll get the chance someday, but, we, we, you know... It, I was. It, it was like you're walking through the hallways, and you constantly heard people being critical of, of Dave, and you constantly heard people uh, just making comments and making comments and making comments. And I have this sense and this impression that he has helped and inspired so many financial broadcasters, whether that's again podcasters, bloggers, you know, financial media. He's inspired so many of us. I mean, he inspired me to do the show. I, I give him full credit for that. Not necessarily the, the, the steps in the last couple of years, but because of his work in financial media, I got inspired by what I could do and, and tried to see what I could learn. And But wow, was the criticism through the hallways of people that's always said, man, he does a great job. Uh, he, you know, he's really great at this, but some of the personalities. So I was not expecting that. I was expecting something different. And it just it taught me a couple of lessons of, A, be careful when you're on top <laughs> because you're only going to be on top for a, a small amount of time. And if I'm ever on top, I'm not even sure if I want to be, but if I'm ever on top um, – if you're my friend, remind me to be careful because, man, the weight of responsibility that comes on your shoulders in that situation and the number of people gunning for you is 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 going to be massive. It also just reminded me that we don't teach people really well how to deal with fame and we don't teach people very well how to be disliked and to be judged and to be critical. I often remind myself about president uh, presidential candidates and presidents that they are you know, some of the most hated people by half the country, and some of the most loved people maybe by the other half of the country, and how fickle the public opinion is. So I'm, you know, 
I've been nervous to go forward little by little by little and kind of becoming more in the public space. But I've had to just recognize, to to learn and observe. And as I said in the Dave Ramsey show, I have a level of respect for Dave that I never had before starting this podcast. And it has made me really just consider some of my opinions about many other things, uh, many other aspects, for example, politics, things like that, just recognizing that what my experience is as a an onlooker or bystander is going to be very different than the experience of somebody who's actually in the race working. And that's a useful lesson to keep throughout my lifetime. And I share that with you as well in case that may be useful for you. Uh, now, I am not going to go out there and be critical of, of other broadcasters or even be critical of Dave. I'm done. Like I, I don't care to be – I have no interest in being negative or critical toward anybody. My philosophy is just about all of us are probably doing the best that we can. And if there's something that is dangerous, then I believe that we have a responsibility to point that out. And that was why I felt that I could release that show. Uh, but I'm done. Uh, I've said my piece, and I don't intend to to revisit it and – just because there's no no need there's no need it's better to it's easier to just simply lead with what you want to do rather than criticizing what other people are doing and if we would do more of that uh, someone coined the word one time uh, uh, duocracy and I love that word that if more of us would just simply start correcting the wrongs that we see whatever those wrongs would be that's what we need more of. So less crit- less critique of other people and more uh, just simply correcting the wrongs that we see. I am incredibly optimistic about the future of financial media. I never realized – I mean I, I had realized this a little bit. But just being at FinCon completely reinforced this uh, opinion that I have. I am so optimistic about our ability to learn more in the future. The the key change that's happening, and I observed this, uh, you know, I've observed this in the abstract a few years ago, but it was just really reinforced. Is that the walls are are obliterated? The wall between person and person is obliterated. So whether you look back at the media events, whether it's the the, the so called Arab Spring with uh, you know the connection of Twitter and Facebook and BlackBerry private messaging and just the ability for people to connect, if you look at the ability of stars to connect with their fan base and to get discovered with their YouTube music and to meet their fan base on Twitter. If you just look at this, the walls are obliterated. And in the financial media, this is the best trend of all time. This is awesome because people uh, – you can now access people that are like you, and you can find people that speak to you. You can find people that, uh, that are appropriate to that, – that, that click with you. You know, so like there are comments. Uh, there were comments on that Dave Ramsey show about, well, you know, I was uh, he's I, his the hardcore conservative Christian you know thing didn't work for me. Um, fine, you know, there's a, a soft core liberal um, atheist <laughs> financial show just waiting somewhere on the internet for you to go listen to, and that's what's so cool is that people can find people who are accessible to them, and. One of the things that my, is my personal challenges, one of my own personal moral challenges, is I find it easy 
uh, to be jealous of people. I find it easy to be jealous of people who have experienced uh, more success than I have, who seem to be more capable and more gifted than I am, who seem to have things come more easily to them. And even in the financial media space, it was the toughest thing for me was over the year of, of kind of starting the show and recognizing that I liked it and then having to pull it off the air, having to sit back and watch uh, show after show after show after show get started. And uh, I was... Uh, you know, it was, it was tough for me because when I started, I'm, I'm looking around and saying, uh, wow, there's, you know, there's not much great, you know, there, there's a couple good ones, but there's not anything really great here. Maybe I could fit this need. And then some people that I really admired and really respected fired up their shows. And all of a sudden I felt like, wow, <laughs> what do I have to contribute? Uh, but what I, the, the, the different approach that it just reinforced in my mind is just to see how different people will speak to different hosts of podcasts, different writers of blogs or of books, will speak to different people at different points in their journey. And that is the, the awesome thing to, to, to keep in mind. It's so easy at a financial media event to see all of the interconnections. And, and it seems sometimes like, like you have the same speakers at the same events. It's like if you write a book and if you're known in the online new media space, you're all of a sudden booked for 15 conferences where you're going to go speak and it's the same thing. Well, that is so – it's such a danger also for bloggers and podcasters and things like that that you know everyone gloms on to the same person for an interview and you feel like you're in this just this tiny little circle. And maybe there's somebody who's a celebrity in this tiny little circle. I mean most of you listening to um, – to my voice, it, most of many of you will know who Jacob Lundfisker is, or many of you will know who um, you know Mr. Money Mustache is, or many of you will know who uh, they're the big ones, but you know J.D. Roth is, things like that. But the reality is, is that the the circle is so much bigger. Like just these many celebrities within this little tiny niche, it's awesome. I love the work that they're doing. All of them, I admire all of them. But the circle needs to be so much wider, and. Uh, and the key thing is, is that as different people from different backgrounds start the different shows, they appeal to people at different stages of their journey. And I keep reminding myself, you know, frankly, the reason why I'm doing this show right now, I'm excited about it. And the feedback has been awesome. But I don't really expect it to be all that much of anything for at least a couple years, simply because of two things. Number one is I have to learn the skills that I've never before acquired to be really excellent at this. And that takes time. Hopefully, I'm getting better. Those of you who have been around since the beginning or who've gone back and listened to shows, I think I'm getting better. But I still view myself as, as giving it, you know, my goal, in my mind, I'm giving it a couple of years. And I've talked about the 1,000 shows, but I don't really expect to be good until, I don't know, show 500. <laughs> uh, and so I just view this as putting in my time, practicing, focusing, learning, reading, uh, you know, going back. And I listen to my shows, and I think, Joshua, why did you say that? How did you not tighten that up? Why did you repeat yourself? Why did you stumble there? Why didn't you think uh, before you talked? Why did you stick your foot in your mouth? That kind of thing. And so I just view this as partly just as preparation. Now, I'm so honored that there are so many of you who are along on the journey with me, and that is exciting. But in many ways, this is – I view what I'm doing now as simply preparation for what I hope is the, is the prime time in the future. And you know what? Today, that's what – today is actually National Podcast Day. Either today or yesterday or, or National Podcasting Day. Somebody made up this holiday. And you know, congratulations, whatever. Happy Podcasting Day. But the reality is, is that still almost nobody knows what a podcast is and almost nobody uh, can, knows how to access one. But that's going to change. 
And to me, that is the key thing is that, you know, if you're a financial podcaster, pay attention to the fact that the tiny little market of people who are listening to podcasts is valuable. Uh, but the most valuable is to reach the general public who's not currently being reached. And that we, that's the, that's the, the, the audience that we can impact and think of how we can encourage those people and educate uh, the people who aren't listening today. So thank you for being an early adopter and for being here if you're here, if you're listening to this voice. And if you're involved in the financial media space, I would just say pay attention to the fact that that uh, the the primary audience is going to be the audience that's going to find podcasting over the next five years. That's where the audience is going to to, to be. So if you are feeling like I have felt, you're jealous of somebody else's success or, or you see someone else that seems to have an easier time, don't worry about that. Just simply focus on doing your own thing and serving the, the, the people that you are able to serve. I would love it if my show appealed to everyone. I really would because that would feed my ego. Uh, but I've recognized that my show is simply not going to appeal to everyone. And there are some shows that I listened, I've listened to recently. I tried to break my not listening to financial podcasting uh, rule just to go out and get a lay of the land. There are some shows that I listen to that I would never be interested in listening to. But I've heard from some of the fans of those shows where the hosts just really speak to them. And are, it's accessible. And that really, to me, encourages me. Because all through our society, all through... The world, and this is not a U.S. American thing. This is all throughout the world. The monopoly and stranglehold of corporatism, uh, I'm not sure the right word. I would say the monopoly and stranglehold of, of crony corporatism and that the big, the big guns is steadily being broken, especially as generations grow up. People often talk, when I talk with generations that are older than me, People often talk about the people that they know and that they that they always admired. Whether it was the in the U.S., it was the NBC and the CBS and the the what's the other one? ABC, I guess, uh, is the third big network that used to be around. And Walter Cronkite, Cronkite and Dan Rather, and Peter, who's the guy that the <laughs> I don't even know the the Peter uh, what's his name Jennings? I, I don't know those big broadcasters that everyone knew every night and. It, you know, I don't even have any – clearly, <laughs> clearly, I don't have any concept of those people. I don't pay any attention. Now, part of that is due to my intentional isolation and insulation from TV. But still, the, the, the big media outlets are quickly losing, losing ground as, as the independent small people uh, gain ground. So this is just the best – this is the best trend in the world for freedom. brings with it a whole host of problems. Uh, but there is room for people who don't know a thing to just simply jump in and learn. Uh, again, this, that's hard for me to take because I have this old-fashioned idea of I got to go out and I got to become the expert and I'm going to go and I'm going to learn blah 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 and I'm going to learn everything and then I'm going to start. And I think that is valuable. I mean, obviously that's what I've done, so of course I think it's valuable. But I think that's valuable. But I'm just shocked by how there's room for people who don't know a thing to just start. And that's why I, I think, every, frankly, all of us should have a financial blog. I should have a financial blog, <laughs> just to track what we're learning and share our lessons, and we can help. We can help one another. And the best way to learn is to teach. And now you're going to get some stuff wrong. And that's where there's a whole host of problems with a lot of people who aren't real experts uh, in sharing things. But then there's some of us who like to think we may have learned some hard lessons who might who want to step in and, and help. Uh, so 
it's it, it, there's a bright day in the in the future. The, the future is incredibly incredibly bright. One trend that I noticed in the in the FinCon, however, and I spent some time talking with a couple of people who were at the at the conference. It is getting tougher and tougher, however, for an individual to really on their own to kind of this this individualized approach to blogging, financial blogging, podca- podcasting even. I, I, I'm stretched to capacity. I'll talk in a, in a few minutes at the end uh, about just you know what's going on with my show and kind of what I'm working on. But uh, it's tough to do it as an individual because what's happening is that the quote-unquote new media is being transformed. And people are learning the benefits of collaboration, taking the team approach to really growing things more than as individuals. So there are some massive changes uh, going on, uh, going on even in our industry. Great, uh, gr- some great speakers. I went to a few of the keynotes and a couple of the small, um, smaller breakout sessions. And as usual, I'll listen to the, to the sessions later when they release the recordings. And just was inspired again. You know, I went to go and see my friend uh, Money Mustache his talk, and I was struck again of how you got to just do your own thing. And ignore the competition, ignore what other people are doing, and do your own thing. This is hard for me um, because I, you know I mean, it's easy for me to go and scope out what other people are doing. But if I see that someone has quote unquote you know stolen a topic that I had planned, it gets me frustrated. So I'm actually done with. I'm going on back under my rock, and I'm just going to work focus on my knitting and, and and try to serve all of you. Uh, and in the interest of serving you, I'm done talking about FinCon. Hopefully there were some interesting lessons that was there. Uh, I don't uh, again. I'm I'm only sharing because I, I want you to have value from some of what I'm learning because I feel like we're friends. And so from time to time I'll do one of these shows where just sharing what I'm learning. MSFS, the MSFS I went to was was awesome. The MSFS, if this is your first time, is it stands for Master what is it Masters of Science and Financial Services. Basically, it's a master's degree in financial planning, and it's hosted by the American College, which is a small college primarily with uh, distance learning opportunities that is exclusively focused on uh, financial services education. They host a number of advanced designations, and and they have their master's degree program. And I was interested in doing it. A, I was halfway there with a bunch of the classes I'd taken for other designations. B, I just, I've always thought it would be cool to go and teach college as, as my retirement plan. When I, even when I was a kid, I, I always I learned that I really enjoyed teaching. And I viewed kind of the perfect life as being a college professor. You know, you teach, what, three, four, five classes a week, you know, depending. And you got to prep for those. And you get to research stuff that you, that you like to research. And you get to write about stuff that you're interested in. And you have this awesome schedule with semesters and summers off and the pay is okay um thus the phd glut and the <laughs> the underemployment in the in the college world because of that now i think those trends are changing and i'm going to talk about them more in depth as far as some of the trends i see but but i always thought that would be cool so i always figured well I'd at least do a master's degree and so it just became it was easy for me i wanted to get it done i learned so much from doing the program and i learned so much from this residency and this residency, we had two classes. We spent the first two days talking about advanced retirement strategies. And this was pretty hardcore, pretty in-depth, you know, real technical financial stuff. It was – we talked about 
distribution strategies. We talked about uh, social security strategies, pretty pretty hardcore, pretty in-depth things. And then the second two days was ethics. And I was shocked by how fun the ethics class was. I expected ethics to be boring. If you're in the financial services business, you know what a compliance meeting is. I expected it to be a two-day compliance meeting, basically, where everyone is just done you know, after about 30 minutes. Uh, but it wasn't. It was an awesome, awesome class. The best thing about it, however, was the group uh, in the, the academic terms. They would call it the cohort. And there were 15 other advisors there in addition to me. I think there were a total of 16 of us in the class. And it was, some, it was one of the most knowledgeable, experienced group of financial advisors that I've ever had the, the privilege of being in a room with. And we ranged from the oldest among us and with the most experience was a gentleman from New York who was – he said he was 75 years old and he had been working in financial services for 45 years. There were a number of people there with 35 years of experience, 30 years of experience, many with 15 years of experience. And then there was all the way down to one young man who had uh, was two years out of college. He had an undergraduate degree in uh, financial planning, and he was two years out of college and uh, was just finishing his master's degree. And I was just so reminded that how different adult learning is with ex- with people who are experienced and knowledgeable and who want to be there versus some of the experiences in child education and child learning. The adult learning was awesome. And most of – I wish actually for more of this in my life because most of my education has been self, self-educated. self You know, I've done uh, – I'm, I'm, I do better on just studying stuff on my own. And, you know, all the classes I did are just self-study. I get the book. I read the book. You know, I get the get, I get the book. I read the book and take the test. That's it. That's the formula. And that that comes easily to me. But the I was I so benefited from the conversation and from the discussions. And it really wound up being such a cool juxtaposition, or I guess as they would say, uh, as we would say today, a smash-up. <laughs> such a cool smash-up of, uh, of these two worlds, of the first week being in the personal finance world, of super enthusiastic uh, personal finance bloggers talking about personal finance, bloggers and podcasters, some of whom have had some experience in the financial, the formal quote-unquote financial world, but many of whom have not. And then to one day later be there with a group of, of incredibly seasoned advisors and just to see how similar our conversation was in many ways, but then how different our conversation was. I learned so much. And we talked a lot about trends. It's interesting to me. There are a lot of people in the financial blogging space who are very critical of financial services, and in many cases, rightly so. I'm very critical of the financial services industry in many ways, and rightly so. And what was interesting to me, however, that all 16 of us who were gathered in the room were very critical of the financial services industry. <laughs> So I'm sitting here saying, where on earth do I go find the people who are not critical or the people who we're being critical of? But I learned two important lessons is I learned lesson number one was uh, the lesson of experience and qualifications. I am increasingly – it's going to sound a little bit silly uh, since I've spent so much time studying. I am increasingly convinced of the necessity 
of advanced financial planning knowledge and advanced financial planning designations in an advisor, in your advisor. All of us were from different companies. There were only – yeah, there wasn't one person actually who was from the same company of the 16 attend classmates of mine or, or rather in the 15 classmates plus me, the 16 of us. We were all from different firms. But all of us had advanced knowledge. All I mean ev- – Everyone had at least two or three designations, you know, a CFP, a CLU, a CHFC, a, what, you know, a SEMA. Uh, we all had at least a couple designations. And the caliber of advisor that it takes to be, you know, to study is very different. It was interesting because all of us, no matter the firm, and many of us came from respected firms, and some of us came from firms that, frankly, I've not had a high opinion of just because some of the reps that I've met. And we all shared the same woes, we, the same criticism of young advisors who uh, who are uh, – I'm not sure how to express it. Advisors who don't care enough about their job to actually learn something, but rather it's just about how much money can I make in a short period of time. And there are some major challenges in the business because we don't know how – like how do you get those people out? Uh, well, well – well, the good thing is, is that the market forces, I believe, are forcing them out. I think we're going to see some major changes in the in the professional world of financial advice, and I think very soon, uh, w- just because of the competition, the best thing that's happened, uh, and this is actually my second point on what, the, what I wanted to share with you about a the the, the common uh, the common complaint of advisors, but b the, the the market forces that are going on in the industry. The best thing that has happened to this industry, my industry, is the intense market competition. And if you don't think market economics matters, just look at the financial advice industry. And if you look at the development of the financial markets and the financial industry, uh, the development of at first not really a very fragmented market, you know, very fragmented markets. You were all everything was private investment. The beautiful uh, pastoral scene of Wall Street originally, where traders came to to buy and sell shares of their company. Uh, under the tree that was there at the square or whatever, there's a famous painting that if you pay any attention to financial history, you see. The development of the markets, kind of the mania of the markets, the stock brokerage business, the stock brokerage business being decimated by the fund industry, uh, and then the stock brokerage business being decimated by technology, online trading. Very few people these days have a stock broker. Nobody even remembers that world. Uh, then now you've seen the fund industry utterly decimated by indexing. And in the last five years, Vanguard has gone from this tiny, not tiny, they, they were not tiny, excuse me. They were like the number two or number three, you know, largest firm. But uh, a, a, a family of mutual funds like American Funds was number one, and they were on the hill for a long time and then completely decimated in the last few years. And I mean, Vanguard is this is this is this behemoth. It is massive, and it is hard to find. Uh, it's hard to find any financial literature that doesn't just simply assume indexing is a fact. 
Uh, and it's so interesting because that has that so so that's destroyed fund expenses. You've seen a dramatic decrease. If you study industry statistics of sales commission, sales load, internal expenses on funds, just dramatic, dramatic decrease. And that pressure is only continuing to intensify. And so that's bringing down expenses. And the margins have become slimmer and slimmer and slimmer for advisors. We talked a lot about this with some of the advisors that the pressure, the intense pressure that is there on the margin for the average advisor is 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 intense the pressure is intense <laughs> it's 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 a strong strong pressure and this is great for the consumer because it's driving costs down now the interesting thing however is while all of us agreed that i and so i'll just give you my opinion there has never been a time in the history of the world where i can imagine it being more difficult for an individual to navigate through the swampy waters filled with alligators that is the financial business, that is the, fin- the, cho- the financial choices. Uh, you know, the tax code is more complex than it's ever been. The investment options are more complex than they've ever been. The insurance choices are more complex than they've ever been. And the decisions are m- more complex than they've ever been. Now, these can be dramatically simplified. They really can be. I admire and want to venerate the people who talk about the simplest approaches to finance and i, I am I, i'm a i'm a what's the word uh uh, minimalist. Uh, so I'm a fan of simplicity and, and minimalism, and, and and I believe simplicity is 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 key. But the problem is, is that the world that we live in generally there's this there's this difference between simplicity is how it's expressed in a short article and the actual ability to be simple. I mean, sit down and read your homeowner's insurance contract. Have, have any of you ever done that? That document is not simple, and yet that's one of the most straightforward, simple types of insurance documents you can get. Sit down and read your your car insurance contract. We don't even get those. Um, sit down and read. We don't, you know, think of what that's like. So there are more room for mistakes than there has ever been, and there are more options available than there's ever been. So the interesting thing, however, is I see this incredible change: is that the the incredible pressure on mediocre financial advisors is driving margins down and is driving people out of the business. And I think that is wonderful. Get the, the scumbags out of the business. Now, if you are a well-meaning person and you are willing to be intellectually honest and you're willing to be a person of integrity, then that's fine. Stay in the business and learn. Uh, but the price of good advice is the de- – excuse me, the demand for good advice is – uh, is going uh, is going through the roof. You know, I thought, frankly, I thought that some of the ideas and the price levels that I think financial planning should be should be billed at were kind of high. And I get a little bit nervous about how strongly I feel about good financial planning advice. But when I listen to some of the fees that that <laughs> we talked about, some of the fees that some of my classmates charge, it was just it was amazing to me to just to think. And I even had trouble just conceiving of myself ever. Uh, charging that much money for a plan and and just feeling like I was worth that much, uh, but once you see the value that you can make i mean it's it 's amazing so it 's a very interesting world i 'm thrilled with i 'm thrilled with the developments i 'm thrilled with the competition i 'm thrilled with the transparency i 'm thrilled with the um, I'm thrilled with it. It's, it's, I mean, I believe in market economies. Uh, I hate saying I shouldn't have said that. I don't like it when people say, I believe in something. 
I think that the market economy is the great equalizer, and I like that you see that happening right now in the financial planning business. I think it's an excellent, excellent development, and I see so many people really honing in on the great value that financial planners can provide and really learning how to articulate that in a better way. And I'm glad because there have been a lot of lies told by some people in the financial services businesses over the last few decades. And yet that doesn't mean that everyone involved in financial services is a liar and a crook. It just means that there are a lot of liars and crooks and there's a lot of people who are not. I have a a newfound respect for the importance of advanced planning knowledge and advanced planning designations. Frankly, I I think my friend Michael Kitsis has it right in his writing. I don't think that he is the one who pioneered this idea, but he's probably one of the more well-known people within the financial services industry. And very quickly, the you know a certified financial planner designation is very quickly going to be a minimum standard. And if your financial advisor does is not a CFP certificate, uh, you should be asking him why not. Uh, if they don't have any uh, letters behind their name, you should be asking them why not and what they're studying for. And the reason may be very simple. For example, the CFP board will not let you will not allow you to use your designation until you've had three years of industry experience. So the young man who is in the class who has an undergraduate degree in financial planning has passed the the CFP exam but can't use the designation. That would be the reason why not. But and it takes time to do all this stuff. It it really does. But if 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 your advisor doesn't isn't knowledgeable, I think you ought to be asking him why not, uh, and you ought to not saying fire him. Uh, I believe strongly there are some advisors who are incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly knowledgeable, who have never you know who never uh, never bothered just to go out and sit for an exam. Uh, but I would encourage you as a consumer of financial advice, pressure your providers because I do not want. Uh, I'm a, I'm a bit of a libertarian, as you probably have figured out by now. Uh, I, am, I do not want to have it forced that the government has to come in and, and bring in more regulation because that is just is a disaster. The market forces work. Uh, we don't need more regulation. It's the most overregulated business in the world, and it doesn't, the regulation doesn't do anything to reduce, uh, to reduce cheating. Uh, it doesn't do anything. It just smart people just work their way around the laws. But when the market forces come to bear, that makes a difference. Really does. It was interesting because I thought I was I thought I was done with studying. I said, or I'm like I don't want to read these boring financial planning books anymore. But uh, I got to talking with the the staff and the team at American College about their PhD program, and and it's very interesting. I, one of these days I may start working on that. Who knows? I realized that I actually am very interested in the theoretical side of financial planning and some of the work that uh, some of the research side, and that's the primary reason to get a PhD. I think is is if you're interested in the research side. But there is such some awesome research going on right now to really advance the science of financial planning. And so who knows, maybe one of these days I'll, I'll start studying again. I, I don't know. But it was interesting just to kind of look through and recognize how much I enjoy studying uh, some, of the, uh, some of the content. Uh, who knows? If we can get this show going, maybe I'll have the time to – if we can get this show making me any money, maybe I'll have the time to do that. Uh, a couple quick things on the show, and then I'm going to tell you how I did this two-week road trip for 600 bucks, And I think you'll, you'll find this uh, – a little bit uh, interesting. 
I was a little bit – I wasn't sure about, about sharing it, but I decided, you know what? Uh, my podcast audience and my friends, I'm going to share it with you guys. Uh, the fascinating thing about going to these two things was just simply the old maxim that exposure creates opportunity. I had wound up with actually three distinct and different uh, business opportunities that came out of simply this trip. None of them expected. All of them that could be awesome businesses. Can't do all three of them. But it just reminded me, exposure creates opportunity. If you're if you're not getting involved in your industry, just consider it because it's a lot better to have opportunities fall in your lap when you're not looking for them than to be out, you know, sending resumes off into the dead end, you know, into the trash bin that is the the address that you send those resumes off to. As far as the show, show's going well. I was just reminded while I was um, while I was at. FinCon that I've got to figure out uh, and upgrade a little bit and figure out some of what I'm doing uh, with the show and how to build it as far as build some of the, you know, to earn a little bit of money off the show. Frankly, I don't know how I'm going to do that. And I've not been, uh, I've not kept it a secret. I'd like to earn a living from doing the show because I really enjoy doing it. Uh, if I weren't able to, if I'm not able to earn a living from the show, it would have to. I would have to reduce the amount of time that I put into preparing for it, and I don't want to do that because I've received such an amazing feedback from you, the audience, and and just the emails and the the comments about how much some of the, the content has helped. And I thank each and every one of you for those comments and those emails. That really makes a huge difference. So there are a few different models, and I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do. The as far as how to earn a little bit of revenue on the show. At this point in time, let's see. For September, we wound up with about 64,000 downloads uh, for the month of September total and wound up being, I guess, about we're up to about 2,500 downloads a day, which is pretty exciting. That's awesome for the third month of the show. That's really thrilling to, to know that there's a couple thousand of you guys listening to me, and I've, I'm hearing from many of you, and I thank you for being there. Thank you for those of you who are mentioning the show to other people. I really appreciate that. That has been uh, awesome. My issues with some of the compensation models, I just don't like some of them. Uh, for example, I could accept advertising. Uh, but the problem is, is that I view advertising as a personal endorsement. And it's so difficult to me. I'm so skeptical and, frankly, suspicious of <laughs> – I guess I'm a hard sell in a lot of the companies that are commonly advertising in the financial world. Uh, and I know enough about the details of the financial world to be careful. There are some companies, I guess, that could advertise um, that I could go and, and I could feel really good about advertising, uh, accepting them as an advertiser for the show. But then I think, well, am I watering down the content? It, do I really want to feel like I'm working for someone? I want to be free to be able to express my opinion without fear of of controlling it. Once you've gotten free of, of having to worry about the corporate image, I mean, it's, it's hard to, for me to consider going back. I do shows with tax cheats. I mean, how awesome is that? I sit here and I talk with people who, you know, and I'm, I, I specifically use the pejorative word tax cheat, you know, to, to illustrate it. It's like, how, how looked down are you? Oh, we don't, I don't pay my taxes. I think that's, that's fascinating. I do all these radical, crazy, nuts shows. And if I had to worry about a certain advertiser being, a, you know, worried that I'm going to do a show on dumpster diving, uh, you know, I, I like talking about that stuff. So it's hard for me to figure out who on earth would be willing to uh, sully their, their, their corporate image with advertising on Joshua's show. Um, <laughs> the more common, you know, way to to make money off of 
uh, a show like this would be uh, what are they called? Uh, referral fees and um, affiliates, uh, affiliate commissions. But half of the affiliates that are commonly bandied about, I got issues with half of them too. So I really don't do myself any favors in <laughs> ticking off everyone who listens to the show, or not not ticking off everyone who listens to the show. I don't do myself any favors by being as suspicious as I am uh, of different companies. So we'll figure it out as time goes on. I got a few ideas pursuing a couple of options. I could just simply go with the listener support model, um, but then I, I I can't stand it when NPR does their their like begging drives, and so I could say. Have a model where if you enjoy the show, you kick in a couple bucks a month, something like that. But I, I just despise it when they when they go and beg for money on NPR, and uh, so uh, that makes so I basically sit here and I think, huh, what am I going to do? Uh, I'm not exactly sure. So we'll figure that out as time goes on. All right. Wrap up here, and I am going to share with you uh, the weird experiment that I did on this on this trip, and share with you how I did this this trip for so cheap. Uh, I was a little bit slow to talk about it because even just still dealing with the social stigma, but I decided it would be fun to do an experiment. I'll give you the backstory. Uh, I was when I wanted to go. To, I can't stand going to these conferences and staying at the hotels because I just the, the, I've gone to so many of these conferences, and you wind up spending a thousand bucks on hotel fees for the weekend. And, um, you know, you're there for three days and they completely just, you know, they take advantage of the fact that there's a big conference. Uh, I used to go to the Northwestern Mutual Annual Meeting every year in Milwaukee and every hotel in the city is sold out. And it's like 300 bucks a night, 200, 200, 300 bucks a night for a not very nice room. And I just, that bothers me. So I never could quite figure it out. One year I tried to find an Airbnb place to stay uh, to avoid the hotel fees uh, and that. Uh, that didn't work out because I couldn't find an Airbnb place who would take me. I uh, couldn't figure out why. Maybe my profile wasn't complete enough. But like, the, and also not having a car is problematic. And so, I mean, the, really, the easiest thing to do is to stay at uh, stay at the hotel that the conference is at. And so, uh, but this one, when I originally planned to take my family with me, I thought it would be fun. We would do a camping trip. I like to I like to go car camping. Um, and so I thought it'd be fun. I would camp out there. I looked and I found a really beautiful park near the college in Philadelphia. I figured we'd be there for a couple extra days. And then I found a really beautiful park in Louisiana. So that was my original plan. Well, then when I found out my scheduling kerfuffle, uh, then... I realized, well, that's not going to work. I can't, my family, I can't take, stick my one-year-old son in the car and expect him to be able to get from New Orleans to Philadelphia in one day and force my, you know, my wife and son to do a 16 or 17 hour drive in about 30 hours, basically. Uh, cause I had Friday night to Monday morning. So I decided that wasn't fair. So I decided to go alone, which I, I didn't want to do. Cause one of the goals of my life is I would like to have my family integrated in everything I'm doing. So I'd like to take my kids with me to a conference and, and I want to teach them uh, how to, I want to teach them how to interact in the business world and interact with other people and how to learn and how to be exposed to different things. I would much rather my 10 year old learn his social skills by being at a FinCon with me than that he learn it from a, you know, a bunch of other 10 year old monkeys in a classroom. Um, that's where, you know, people talk about socialization of kids. That's, that's how you teach social skills, in my opinion. Um, the 10 year old in the classroom are guaranteed to doom your, you know, your kid to uh, a lifetime of, you know, being a kid. But uh, if you, and, and he's, it takes him 10 or 15 years to recover, maybe from that out of, you know, when he finally hits the adult world and re- relearns how to be an adult, 
uh, I guess I don't need to be so inflammatory, but I do feel strongly about that. So I want my family to be inv- engaged with me and, and to be involved with me. So I was disappointed when I recognized that it wasn't fair to, to do that. So I went ahead, and I was going to book a room for the, uh, for the hotel. Uh, but by then, I was going to book a room, and I was like, I don't want to pay this money uh, for, this, for this thing. So I decided I'd had such a good experience staying in the Prius when I was on the uh, – where did it was? Texas. When I went to Texas, I camped in the Prius on the way there, then stayed with a friend, and then camped in the Prius on the way back. And I'd, I'd read about that online, and I thought, uh, I thought it was such a cool idea. I tried it out, and it worked awesome. And if you didn't hear that show, the idea is basically that in the Prius, you can put the seats flat. So you put the passenger seat all the way back, and then you flip the back seat forward, and you've got – basically a flat space that you can lie down in and you put your head at the back of the car and your feet at the front and it's not quite flat where your feet are but it's good enough and you put a little pad down like a thermarest something like that and uh, you put the pad down and it would uh, and then you have a fairly comfortable situation and because the prius is a hybrid you can leave the ac on all night and it'll run the ac for you you can leave the car on with the ac on all night it'll run mainly off the battery but every 15 minutes 20 minutes something like that it kicks the car on recharges the battery then turns itself off so i had tried it on the way to texas worked awesome so i said i wonder if i could do it so i read that i read that book i'd never done it prior to uh with the exception of one camping trip where uh, my wife and i camped in the back of a car because we didn't have a tent um in the back of my SUV at that time. Uh, and that was where it was nice and cold. I'd never done it. So I decided it would be fun to kind of try it. And I was a little bit embarrassed about it because I felt like I, I didn't want to, uh, you know, I was worried about, uh, I wasn't doing it because I didn't have the money to pay the hotels. I was doing it because I'm just, I didn't want to pay the money for the hotels. I wanted to try something else. So I didn't actually tell anyone. I only told one person while I was in New Orleans that I was doing this. Uh, but I tried it on the way out there. And then when I got there, it worked uh, It worked awesome. Uh, I stayed in the car. And I felt like a total – I felt – I felt a little bit of empathy uh, for you know the people who live in their cars. I read these books again by these people who live in their cars. I felt a little empathy, and I uh, and I I just but I I tried it and it was awesome. Uh, I stayed in the car and I actually wound up staying in the car for two weeks, with the exception of one night in Washington D.C. on the way home. Uh, with stayed with a friend. And my rule was that I said I'm going to do this as a fun experiment. But if it becomes too much, I'm going to immediately stop. And I'm just going to get, you know, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, uh, have a, you know, a time limit that I was committed to. I was willing to go and get a hotel anytime I needed one. So I thought, okay, I'll go ahead. As long as I can go to get a hotel, anytime I feel like this isn't work, I'll give it a shot. And part of this was just wanted to try to stretch my boundaries. I like the idea from, uh, I guess it's probably more of Stoic philosophy is probably the originator of that. Uh, It's as far back as I know to trace it. But basically the idea of put yourself in difficult situations so that you don't need to be be coddled. challenge yourself with difficult situations. So I figured, one of the, for example, I've always done car camping. I've never done backpack camping. So someday I'd like to go out and do ultralight backpack camping because I'm, I'm scared of it. I don't, I'm scared of what would I do if I didn't have all the equipment that I can carry in my car. So I try to challenge myself with the stuff. So I wound up doing that. And I stayed in the car. And the first, uh, first night was fine. I stayed in a rest stop kind of got got comfortable with it second night i get to new orleans i don't know what to what to do and and so here was how i kind of hacked the new orleans parking i don't know if hacked i don't know if i deserve the word hacked but i thought it was a 
a good try. Uh, I couldn't, you know, basically in downtown New Orleans, there's you, you got to pay for parking like crazy. It's like forty bucks a day for parking. So I said, I wonder if there is a another option. So I asked some of the valets, and one of the valets suggested uh, the casino. So. To cut this short, because uh, we're at an hour and eight minutes, six minutes here, uh, to cut this short, at the casino, they have an option where if, if you play, if you gamble for at least 30 minutes, they give you 24 hours of free parking. And this is plastered all over the place. So I decided to try it. So I went to the casino and I signed up for their membership program. And then I, I paid, I figured out that you couldn't do card games, table games. I enjoy card games sometimes, uh, but it, slots seem to be the most efficient way. And so I would, would play the penny slots. And as long as I paid the penny, penny, penny slots for 30 minutes, <laughs> I saved my, uh, my $40 a day parking fee. And, uh, that was cool. Uh, 80 bucks an hour. That's not a bad wage, uh, to save, to save the money. And then number two, I wound up just staying in the, the casino garage the whole time. I found an out of the way place to park and I, I stayed in the casino garage and I had it figured out to where, uh, it was fairly private and it worked great. So then Pennsylvania was easier because instead of being in a downtown, there was lots of great parking lots and, and things like that. And I had, you know, I had a hotel lined up that was a lot cheaper in Pennsylvania that I was going to stay at if I needed to, but I had so much fun doing it. Uh, that uh, I just thought it'd be, it was it was it was a fun adventure. Uh, I don't know that I care that much to ever do it again. Uh, I really don't because it was it was a little bit of a pain to not ha- the biggest pain of it was not having a place to go that you could just relax. So if you have a hotel room, you can set up your computer, you can get some work done. You feel like you have a place that you belong uh, when you're in the car because you you're so used to uh, being in the car and going places. It's kind of hard just to hang out in the car. That's a little weird. So. I, I wound up, and I was working a lot while I was there, so I wound up, I wound up hanging out with people, or you know, go to the library and working from the library or something like that. So it was an interesting social experiment. Uh, I thought I learned a lot from you know with people. There's a lot of news over the last few years of people losing their jobs and living in their cars. I wondered what it would be like, and now I think I have a little bit of a, a little more empathy for what it's like. Uh, really, not that bad in many ways, but also a little different. You definitely don't have quite the same sense of belonging. Uh, I definitely, if you were a single person, get man doing the Prius and getting 50 miles per gallon while you're driving across the country and camping in the car, I think that can work awesome for a single person. I would have no problem doing that again. I think I would definitely, if I were in certain you know beautiful locations, I wouldn't want to be stuck in the car. I'd want to have a tent to go out and, and you know set up in the... The beautiful mountain stream next to the you know the beautiful pasture in the mountain valley, uh, but as far as getting there and having a place to stay, it just it, it takes all of the hassle of finding a hotel while you're on the road right out of the picture. Knowing that you can just pull over anywhere, any rest stop, any truck stop, any just grocery store parking lot and spend the night takes a lot of hassle out of doing a road trip. So it was a cool experience. If I were single, uh, excuse me, if you were a single person traveling alone, I think it works awesome. Uh, I saved at least, let's see, I was gone for two weeks, so let's call it 14 days, minimum 100 bucks average. Uh, so let's call it, uh, it was actually more like 150 probably because the places I was at was expensive. So let's say I saved two grand doing it. Man, uh, put that two grand aside. Let's run some math for you live on air. Two thousand bucks. Let's see how much money I wound up with. Present value. Let's run a forty years. Yeah, let's run twelve percent for fun. 
So let's see, that 2000 bucks 40 years from now, I have $186,000 extra because of camping in a car for two weeks. Uh, not going to work with two people, by the way. Not nearly enough room. You have no room for stuff if you were two people. So don't think that this is going to be – I mean, try it. Maybe you can. But at least do a minivan if you're going to be two people. So that's my report for you from my trip. I think I've covered everything I wanted to cover. I told you about FinCon, told you what I learned. I told you about my MSFS class, told you some of the things I've learned. I'm going to be bringing some of the professors that I've worked with uh, at the at uh, the American College on the show here just to talk about some of the topics that we covered. I mean, there's really, really doing some excellent work. Tomorrow, actually, is an interview with Dr. Wade Fow. He is a retirement researcher there at the... Uh, American College, and really does some in-depth research on retirement. Uh, I think you'll enjoy that. So I will release that show tomorrow. And then Thursday, I will probably, assuming that the the interview goes off, I've got an interview lined up with a uh, young couple. Uh, They have a family, and that he's actually living in a bus while they build a house. And what I'm interested in talking with them is I've read their site, their website, and it sounds like some things about it are really great and some things about it are not so great. So I'm excited about bringing you that interview, and that would be should be Thursday. I've received a bunch of questions from you, uh, a few on the voicemail line and a bunch of questions via email for Q&A shows. So I will do that probably on Friday and then uh, release some, you know, some more next week. We'll see. I haven't uh, fully set out the agenda. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'm not going to close out with my normal music. I'm going to close out with a uh, a fun song uh, that I just want you to hear. It's actually it's the FinCon 14 official song, probably. Uh, it's called Can't Get Enough. And uh, this song, uh, the background on it, it was written as a rap. Uh, it's a rap song. It was written by uh, a man named Matt Giovannisi, and he is one of the guys that blogs and podcasts over at Listen Money Matters. Does a good job. Um, they have a, a very different show than mine. Go check it out and you'll see what I mean uh, if you're interested. They have a very different show than mine, but they do, they do a good job with their, with their stuff. So he wrote this song, produced it, and then they did a crowdsourced rap video with it with some of the people at, uh, at FinCon. Uh, uh, lip syncing uh, with this video and I thought he did an awesome job with it and so I'm going to close with that song uh, send you out with it enjoy it's uh, this this show is not going to become all about the financial podcasting business but I thought you'd be in- interested in it. I know some of you listening are bloggers yourself so I'm going to send you out with that thank you for listening if you haven't done it uh, if you like the show please make sure that you subscribe uh, I've learned recently a little bit more of the science behind this stuff and and the reviews and things that so many of you left really matters. Uh, But I learned that actually subscriptions make a big difference. I never knew that because I figured everyone subscribed, but they all told me, Joshua, make sure you encourage the audience to subscribe. So if you haven't subscribed, if you just come to the site, go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or whatever you do, that'll help the show. And I leave you with Can't Get Enough. Yeah, FiendCon 2014, jet lag, tote bags down in New Orleans. It's like a field of dreams, and it seems that everybody networking, trying to make them greens. Yo, we all prolific about money specific. We got our heads spinning like we're doing whippets. Uh, it's just what we do. So let's tell them what we all go through. Uh, wake up, 8 o'clock, and I got writer's block. But I'm on my fifth cut, so you know I can't stop. Put my fingers to the keys, and I start to write. When I finish, I can edit just to make it tight. Then I hit submit. Yeah, that's legit. Sit back and watch all the shares I get. I check Facebook and Twitter. It's only getting bigger. I'm getting mad likes till I hit seven figures.
years, uh, I'm on the brick of more credible links And me thinks that after that I deserve some drinks Celebrate till I'm wasted I spend all of my dough, I never worry about S-E-O Like a cheetah straight chasing down these algorithms Enough to give a normal nerd an aneurysm It's just a matter of time until I start to rank And laugh all the way to the bank Cause I check my stats like every day Even though nothing ever goes my way Cause I can't get enough There's nothing that I'd rather be doing Cause today. Cause I check my stats hey. like every day. Hey. Even though nothing ever goes my way. Cause I can't get enough. And I'm just obsessed. Hey. Gotta refresh. Hey. Google Analytics always got me stressed. Cause I can't get enough. is a magic place where kids discover who they are because they have the freedom to explore on their own. Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is a sleepaway camp in the heart of Idaho's wilderness. Each summer, campers make friends, build new skills, and learn to love the outdoors through activities like canoeing, archery, zip lining, rock climbing, campfires, and more. Registration for Y Camp at Horse Thief Reservoir is open. Financial assistance is available. Learn more at ycampidaho.org.